Well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is the main messaging you'll hear at most megachurches in America. They promote an exclusively positive, uplifting message. The preacher is there to let you know that God's mission is to make you happy, to help you find your authentic self, and to make you reach your full potential. The only thing holding God back from giving you all of your desires is you. You must have faith. You must trust God that he wants to, to give you all you want. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus say that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly? God wants you to have money in the bank and health in the body and success in life. I think the life verse for a lot of these churches is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, where God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. This type of messaging is a dominant feature in a lot of prosperity gospel churches and word of faith churches, and it works. People flock to this type of teaching the world over. You may wonder, how has this type of messaging become so popular? Well, for one, it tells people what they want to hear. Most people don't want to be confronted about the bad news, about their sin problem. The feeling of conviction can be incredibly uncomfortable, turns a lot of people away, Instead, people want to be told how good they are. They want to know that that God is on their side to give them all of their desires. It's an inherently man-centered message, but it it fits perfectly with our very man-centered culture. But another reason this messaging has worked so well in America is that most people who call themselves Christians don't know the Bible, like at all. Biblical ignorance is just through the roof. Most Christians have no clue what the Bible actually teaches And I fear a lot, just don't really even care. The thing is, though, just the very simple task of reading the Bible is the death knell to prosperity gospel teaching because its messaging is just so blatantly against the messaging of the Bible. And that's why this type of teaching has never worked before in church history. It just couldn't because too many people knew the Bible. They knew the message of prosperity is not the message of Jesus or the apostles, And so before 1900, no one really bought this type of teaching. I mean, take Jeremiah 29, 11, for example. has to be the single most abused verse in all of Scripture, violently ripped from its context. Because in context, God's not even talking to the church. It's a message for the nation of Israel. And God is giving them a word of comfort as he will restore the fortune of the nation. But you have to remember that his message comes right on the heels of the exile. Don't forget, God himself just inflicted untold suffering on Judah for their immorality and idolatry. Jerusalem and the temple were just obliterated. The people were taken captive. This all came at God's own hand to his own people as a discipline. I'm pretty sure in that moment they did not think they were living their best life now. And let's not forget what the prophet Jeremiah himself had to go through. He's one of the only righteous men left. He's actually doing what was right before the Lord, seeking true righteousness. But he's known as the weeping prophet. God sent him to warn the people and the priests before the destruction of Jerusalem, but nobody ever listened to him. They rejected him and his message. They reviled him and mocked him. And then things got physical. Jeremiah 20, he was beaten and put in stocks. Jeremiah 26, the priest pronounced a death sentence on him for daring to predict that the temple would be destroyed which later happened. In Jeremiah 38, he was cast into a cistern and left to die in a muddy grave. 
So what do you think Jeremiah would have said to the message that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Now, the thing is, there is actually some truth to the statement that God has a wonderful plan for your life. But don't sell the real good news of Scripture short. Don't settle for a wonderful plan that just involves a little bit of better health and a little more money. The real wonderful plan of Scripture is being delivered from God's just wrath in hell, being granted eternal life, being conformed to the image of his son who saved you. That's the real wonderful plan. But as was true for the Lord Jesus himself, that the cross comes before the crown. And the road to the kingdom is lined with suffering. Because this is still a wicked, unjust world until the Lord returns to set things right. Those who follow the Lord will continue to suffer and be rejected just like he was. And so we must not be deceived and carried astray by false prophets like those in Jeremiah's day who prophesied peace, peace, when there was no peace, Jeremiah 6.14. And we must not like be the people in Isaiah's day who told their prophets They said, quote, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. It's Isaiah 30, verse 10. We need to be shown with eyes wide open the, the true way of the Lord. And there is eternal glory to be had and a wonderful plan, but we first need to learn what it means to bear a cross. And that's what the Lord himself is going to, to show us, teach us this morning in the eighth and final Beatitude, which is found in Matthew chapter 5. So you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. It's already been a couple months since we started into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and we're still in the introduction. But that's okay, because Christ begins this greatest sermon with no ordinary introduction. It begins with the Beatitudes, and these are like condensed capsules of God's wisdom. Do you want true blessing. Do you want to know God's wonderful plan for your life? Christ tells us this is what it looks like. Jesus tells us what it means for for true disciples to be blessed or divinely favored. The thing is that we find that the Lord's wonderful plan for your life is completely opposite the world's idea and that of prosperity preachers as well, because God's kingdom is not of this world. It's an upside down kingdom compared to the world, at least. And the character of those who belong to this kingdom must be markedly different than those in the world. We've already gone through and studied the first seven of these Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3, and following. What have we already found? You know, the world says, blessed are the rich, but the Lord says, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world says, blessed are those who party, But the Lord says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The world says, blessed are the strong. But the Lord says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The world says, blessed are the full. But the Lord says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. The world says, blessed are the ruthless. But the Lord says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The world says, blessed are the hedonists, but the Lord says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the world says, blessed are the dominant, but the Lord says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And true followers of Christ, they're not after the Lord's 
or rather the world's blessing or the world's approval. They only want God's blessing. They're only seeking God's approval. And Jesus here shows us what that truly entails. This picture culminates now with the eighth and final beatitude, starting in verse 10. This is the one and only beatitude on which Jesus elaborates. This is the climax to them all. It's a fitting conclusion to what it means to be blessed. And the world says, blessed are the safe. But Jesus says, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It doesn't sound like a very fun or happy message, but the paradox of the Beatitudes continues because the Lord actually says that this persecution is the place of blessing. Even doubles down and tells us to rejoice and be glad when you're made to suffer like this, when you're you're afflicted for the name of Jesus, that's not a sign that you're outside of God's favor. It's a sign that you're in God's favor. It's not a a sign that you don't have enough faith. It's a sign that you already have plenty of faith. And really, the Lord offers a double blessing with this last beatitude, the eighth beatitude in verse 10. It follows the same general pattern and structure as the ones that came before it. But you might notice that the promised benefit of the eighth beatitude is the same as the first, namely where he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first one, the last one have the same reward. Both of these beatitudes, the first and last are in the present tense. The ones in the middle are in the future tense, kind of highlighting the tension between the fact that we who are in Christ presently belong to his kingdom, but yet to uh, have, uh, have in the future still the fullness of kingdom benefits. But Clearly, though, the first and the last Beatitudes are like bookends showing this is all a unit. This is just the character of the true disciple. But again, only for the last Beatitude does Jesus elaborate. He even offers a second blessing in verse 11. He says again, blessed are you. He also switches to the second person, not they, but you. Blessed are you when people insult you. He's making it quite personal to his disciples. And he offers them a a double reward. Your reward in heaven will be great. I mean, just to say the least, Jesus completely challenges how we think of persecution. And it's quite clear, Jesus believes it's a normal part of discipleship. It's not an exception. It's the norm. That's because we live in a world still dominated by sin and rebellion against this Lord. And so the way of the world and the way of the Lord will always clash. It's just something to be expected. The darkness will always hate the light. And so even a child's reading of scripture could not miss this point. Uh, Contrary to prosperity preachers, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the paradox we need to explore this morning is how this actually makes us blessed And for his true disciples, the Lord really does have in store for us a wonderful plan. Just as God the Father had a wonderful plan in store for his son. But we need to reflect on this final beatitude 
that we might accept the fact that this wonderful plan comes with the cross long before it comes with the crown. So we're going to go through verses 10 through 12 now. Just want to explore the, the paradox of blessed persecution. Explore the paradox of blessed, uh, blessed persecution. We'll do it along four lines. And the first, the reasons for blessed persecution. The reasons for blessed persecution. You'll see in verse 10, Jesus doesn't just bless the persecuted. Those who are persecuted for any old reason. He doesn't offer a blessing on those who are persecuted for the wrong reasons. Like the criminal who gets beaten up while trying to rob, rob a liquor store. That's, that's not a blessed persecution. Or the student who gets expelled because they were cheating. That's, that's not a blessed persecution. Just getting what you deserve. It's like the apostle Peter said, 1 Peter 3.17. He said, it's better that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Makes sense. 1 Peter 2.20. He says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? No, but when you do what is right and suffer for it, then you patiently endure. This finds favor with God. And so when it comes to persecution, the type that finds God's favor or blessing is is persecution for doing what is right, a.k.a. righteousness. 1 Peter 3.14. Give me a lot of 1 Peter references. He says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. It's his own beatitude. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Suffering for righteousness makes you blessed, and suffering for the name of Christ also makes you blessed. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, make sure none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. That's to glorify God in this name. You can already see how this is a big theme in 1 Peter. As Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they're facing increasing persecution. But as they suffer for the sake of righteousness, or just for the sake of following Christ, for his name, they're blessed. And what do you know? These are the exact same two reasons Jesus gives for blessed persecution. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And Jesus gives the same two reasons for blessed persecution. Let's look at them then a little more closely. So the first is when you're made to suffer for righteousness. Righteousness refers to conforming to his standard. And obviously, Jesus has in mind God's standard. God is the one who defines right and wrong. The world today doesn't think so. They've rebelled against God's righteousness. They have, like Romans says, suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And we once were no different. That used to be us. The Christian is merely one who has gone to Christ by faith. Uh, been forgiven of all of his unrighteousness, received the Lord's perfect righteousness in return. And he then aims to live out that righteousness 
as a result. Just like the fourth beatitude says, he or she hungers and thirsts for righteousness. But for those who are still living in the world, they're still living in unrighteousness, that they don't always like that. That's because being confronted with God's standard of true righteousness just by nature convicts and condemns them. Even if you don't say anything, even if you're not even using words, just seeking to live according to God's righteous standard will trigger the one living in unrighteousness. Your light will inadvertently shine on the darkness of their lives and they're not going to be happy about that. Like Jesus said, everyone who does evil hates the light. It lays bare their unrighteousness. You may go stand on a sidewalk outside an abortion clinic and just silently pray for those inside. And that's it. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not being obnoxious or boisterous. You're not even confronting anyone. You're just standing by yourself and praying. But someone might still come out and yell at you, harass you, spit on you. Why? Because your mere presence there just convicts them of their wrongdoing. They have to silence their conscience and they have to silence those who arouse their conscience. The same goes for maintaining your integrity at work, in the home. Maybe you work closely around a crew of non-believers. You're just trying to work hard while honoring the Lord. But that means you can't go along with everything they say, everything they do. The guys at work are, are slinging profanity. They're telling crude jokes. They're showing off lewd images. But you choose not to partake. You're not going to look. You're not going to laugh at those things. And let's say, let's hope you're doing this without an ounce of pride. You're not being self-righteous. You're being humble. You're meek. You're not shoving it in their face. You're just trying to stick to yourself and be nice without being stained by the world. But still, this, this condemns them. I mean, first, what's going to happen? They will pressure you to conform. It convicts them. They want nothing more than for you to fall to their level, join them in their unrighteousness. It'll make them feel a whole lot better. But if you refuse, I mean, how long until they, they turn on you? They'll eventually start tearing you down, ostracize you. If we can go back to Peter again, Peter predicted the same thing. If you keep a, a bookmark in First Peter, this message, you'll, you'll do well. First Peter 4, 3 through 5. He says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Been there, done that, repented. We don't do that anymore. We've been forgiven. But he says in verse four, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This describes the wife who wants to attend church on Sunday morning, but her unbelieving husband yells at her for ruining his weekend plans. This is the high school student who finally works up the courage to tell someone about Jesus at school, but gets chewed out and humiliated. This is the college student who refused to bow to the sexual ethic of our culture and gets ostracized by her peers. This is the young couple who who chooses to worship with the people of God at church on Easter morning instead of going to their family traditional breakfast and gets blasted by all their family members for being unloving. There's just endless examples we could go through and endless more as our culture sinks deeper into the abyss. Our nation continues to label light, 
dark and dark light. And that's going to have two effects. First, it's going to make the light of Christ shine brighter. That's a good thing by contrast. But, but secondly, it's going to mean that when that light shines, it's going to hurt their eyes more. Those who refuse to humble themselves and come to the light will all the more rush at it to put it out. And that's what they did to the Lord himself. You know, the chasm between righteousness and unrighteousness was never greater than when Jesus walked the earth. Because unlike you and me, he was perfectly righteous and perfectly sinless. He never did anything wrong. He only ever spoke truth. And that's it. But still, how did they treat him? The spiritually proud and self-righteous hated him because he exposed their evil hearts. And they persecuted him unto death. And rejection is part of the way of the Lord. We'll talk about later how we are to respond to such persecution. But, but first, you need to know that if you ever find yourself in that situation, don't fret. You're blessed. You're experiencing blessed persecution. There's a blessing from God found when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. True righteousness, doing what is right according to God. You're blessed. And there's also a blessing from God when you're persecuted for the name of Christ. The second reason of blessed persecution. Because other times we are simply made to suffer just because we cling to the name of Christ. And when you live for Christ, it puts you in opposition to the world and the God of this world, Satan. And so you can expect to receive the same treatment from the world and the devil as the Lord did. I mean, stay in Matthew, but also flip to John 15. Didn't the Lord Jesus warn his disciples of, of this very fact? You know, John 15, he has a lot to say about what's to come to prepare them. But John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So basically, it just comes with the territory. As his disciples were guilty by association. You know, back in Matthew 5, 11, Jesus says, uh, blessed are you when people insult you. That, that word when can just as equally be translated whenever. And there's no doubt in the context, Jesus sees this persecution as an inevitability. It's just a matter of time. And that's why Jesus here in Matthew and, and throughout the gospels, he's frequently warning his disciples of what's going to happen to them, especially when he's gone. He's preparing them. He's setting their expectations that they're not caught off guard, caught unaware when, you know, like how they're going to treat me. That's pretty much what they're going to do to you. But they need to have the right expectations that they might rightly respond and endure. And that's why it's just as critical for you today still to accept what Jesus says about persecution. I mean, it's going to come if you truly follow the Lord. If you're not prepared for it in the moment, you're caught unaware. You might think God is against you or that God is cursing you. 
But no, that, that's not the case. Just the opposite. You're to rejoice. Be glad. You're blessed. This is blessed persecution. Don't forget the stakes here, namely eternal life. I know this whole beatitude, all of them, they sound crazy, but this one especially. I mean, what religious leader promises to his followers untold suffering, rejection, and even possibly death? I mean, that's not how it works. You're not supposed to tell them the bad stuff. You're only supposed to tell them the good stuff. How are you going to get people to follow you? But the Lord will draw his people by his spirit. His people are those who count the cost. And though they face self-denial and a measure of persecution, his people know knows that that weighs an ounce compared to the, the weight of escaping the wrath to come, saving their souls, and enjoying life with God forever. They know that, that the glory to come far outweighs any present momentary light affliction. But present sufferings are simply part of the cost of discipleship. You know, flip over to Mark 8. We're pretty close here. Go to Mark chapter 8. The Lord, I think there especially laid it down pretty clearly. It says Mark 8, 34. Mark 8, 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying self is the first step of faith, saving faith. And following Christ means you receive him as your Lord. That means you are no longer Lord. You are no longer the Lord of your life. It's not up to your will. It's his will be done in all things. So first, deny self. Really, that turns into die to self. That's what he means by picking up your cross. You realize back then, that's the equivalent of saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. We think of the cross as a cute little piece of jewelry, but back then it was one thing. It was a means of violent death and execution. Pick up your cross and follow me. What's they communicating? This is a way of death, death to self, death to pride, death to the world's ambitions and values. But it's also a way to eternal life. Verse 35 of Mark 8, he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life is dying to self for my sake and the gospel's We'll save it. And you too have to count the cost. You have, to, you have to examine yourself. Do you have true faith in this Jesus? Is he actually your, your Lord where you do what he says? You follow him. You orient your life around his will revealed in his word or not. And one of, not all, but one of the greatest proofs that you have that true faith is your willingness to suffer for him to be accept persecution for his name. I mean, look, there, there's a really easy way to avoid all this. It's really easy to, to stay safe, keep your comfort. You just have to deny Jesus or at least distance yourself from him. Put some distance in between. Keep quiet about him. Stay away from his followers as well. You know, like the weird ones, the extreme ones. At least hide your faith and just kind of go along with the world and they will welcome you as one of them. I mean, the, the very first Christians were tested like this. Starting at the end of the first century, the Roman emperor Domitian, he decreed that all must worship him as Lord. So you had to go to the public, public square. You just had to offer a pinch of incense and confess Kaiser Curios 
Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. And off you go. If you don't, you risk imprisonment, loss of property, and even death. That's what Christians received because they came to the public square and refused to confess that they would only confess, Jesus, curios, Jesus is Lord. And around 160 AD, Polycarp is the bishop of Smyrna. He's an old man, probably the last man alive at that time to have seen one of the apostles. He himself was a disciple of the apostle John. But his followers were captured and tortured to reveal his location. He was arrested, taken to the arena, and the proconsul urged him, just confess Caesar, I'll let you go. That's all you have to do. He says, reproach Christ, and I'll set you free. But Polycarp, now an old man, 86, he said back, 86 years I have served him, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And after that, Polycarp was sent to the flames. But there he tasted the fellowship of Christ's suffering, being conformed to his death, that he might know the power of his resurrection. It's Philippians 3.10. You know, everyone's going to die. We're all going to pass through the threshold of death one way or another. But only those who remain faithful to the Lord will be, be greeted with eternal life on the other side. You know, if you're still in Mark 8, verse 36, continuing, Christ says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And look, verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So you just genuinely have to ask yourself, whose approval do you want? At least most, right? Honestly ask, we all have the fear of man to some degree. You might fear this persecution Jesus speaks of, but at the end of the day, whose approval do you value more? The world's or the Lord's? Do you want to be greeted and accepted by those in the world with arms wide open? They count you among the ranks of their blessed, their fortunate, or Though despised and rejected by the world, do you want to be greeted with arms wide open by the Lord and counted among the ranks of his blessed? But remember, his blessing is not like the world's. That's what these beatitudes are all about. It it takes faith to believe this. Saving faith, though, means you swear allegiance to Christ and, and you're unashamed. Thereafter, you're not ashamed of him, his gospel, his church, his cross, his word. So do not be ashamed of Christ. And when made to suffer for his name or his righteousness, you're blessed. This is a blessed persecution. These are the reasons for blessed persecution. We need to keep going. There's more to see. Secondly, the representations of blessed persecution. The representations of blessed persecution. By this, we just mean that, that this type of blessed persecution will come in many forms. It will it'll be represented in many ways, take many shapes. Christ himself mentions three forms here in the Beatitudes. So let's just look at these and go back to Matthew 5, verse 11. He mentions first insults. Blessed are you when people insult you. The word for insult generally means to revile 
or disparage or defame. So we're talking abusive speech. It can come in many different forms. Insult, slander, mockery, ridicule. Any speech just designed to tear someone down. And verbal insults are usually the, the first wave of persecution because it's so easy to just let loose these arrows designed to sting and hurt others. And the quickest outlet for someone's hatred in their heart is the mouth. And look, this pattern, everything the Lord warns us of, he experienced first, right? At least you can't complain in that regard. He went first. And the Lord suffered this type of persecution all the time. His opponents, as we'll see more and more in Matthew's gospel, they could never contend with his words. I mean, his truth, his logic were just airtight. They were irrefutable. They could never win an argument. So like most people, what do you do? When you can't win an argument based on the argument, you go after the person, right? Ad hominem attacks, you start tearing them down. And such verbal insults, Jesus received all his ministry. They culminated in his crucifixion. I mean, it's like rubbing salt in his wounds with their words. And before the cross, Jesus was physically beaten and then viciously mocked by the Romans. If you remember, they stripped him naked, put a purple robe on him, twisted a, tr- a crown of thorns on his head, and then took turns bowing before him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. That's insult. That's mockery. But it gets worse. While hanging on the cross, Matthew 27, 39, says those passing by were hurling abuse at him. Verse 41, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. And then even verse 44, Matthew 27, says the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. I mean, come on, these are the two guys who are themselves being executed for their crimes, but they're using some of their very last breaths to insult the sinless Savior in between them. The Lord Jesus was thoroughly reproached and reviled. And look, he's telling you, if you're going to follow him, it's eventually going to happen to you in one way or another. And insults against Christians have always been common, especially because the the true, the meek believer will not revile in return. We're not going to fight fire with fire. We just, we should accept the slander of the world without retaliation. I mean, you know, the world today is is deathly afraid to insult Islam, but they're not going to publish disparaging comics of the prophet Muhammad because they know radical Muslims will persecute them their own way. They'll come after them. But the world has has really no fear of slandering Christians. It's grown accustomed to slandering Jesus and his followers. They know that they're not going to do anything. But indeed, we, we, we shouldn't. We trust God to judge, and he will. A couple years ago, a Brazilian parody movie was released called The First Temptation of Christ and depicted Jesus as gay. Every few years, there's some, you know, egregious blasphemy of the Lord like this. It happens all the time. The thing is, though, in Brazil, an extreme extreme group actually did firebomb the studios or, or the offices of this studio. You hear that, you might secretly approve, but you should not. It's not the way of the Lord. You and me, we're, we're just guilty sinners. And we're just saved by grace. Vengeance and retribution are not our place. We are simply to follow him. And that involves just accepting all of his reproaches that happen to fall on us. 
1 Peter 4, another 1 Peter verse, 4 verse 14. Peter says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So there's just one way blessed persecution might come at you, insults. Second way, back to verse 11 of Matthew 5. Second way, he mentions just outright persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you and, secondly, persecute you. It's kind of a general word for persecution. Dioko means to pursue, means to chase after someone. It's where you're going after someone, you're harassing them, you're, you're out to get them, and you want to make them suffer. So this type of persecution really refers to going beyond words. Insult, just talking about words. Here, we're, we're moving up the next level. And such harassment can involve intimidation, property damage, slashing tires, keying cars, Hebrews 10.34 speaks of believers joyfully accepting the seizure of their property. Loss of property. Speaking of property, our little church building here has suffered its fair share of harassment over the years. This is before the time, I think, of most of you, but several years ago, someone took a hose outside, shoved it in the mail slot of the fellowship hall, turned it on, and left it all night long. It flooded the whole building with like an inch, two inches of water. So overnight, a hose. I like to say that they baptized the building for us. <laughs> and at least we got new carpet out of it. It was covered by insurance. Look, in comparison to what others have gone through, our troubles are, are, are nothing. They're inconsequential. But any of this harassment, it's, Christ says, this is a blessed persecution. But we know many Christians in other countries have witnessed this persecution on, on a, a real level. We know a, a whole other level. I'm talking physical attack, imprisonment, and even death. And here there's again no shortage of stories. We often associate this type of persecution, you know, martyrdom, the M word, with the early church. Like that's an early church thing, right? But no, the early church was really just a drop in the bucket with what would come after in church history. Vastly more Christians have been martyred in the past hundred years than the whole early church combined. And even in the past 20 years, it's estimated 2 million Christians have been martyred for their faith. If you've been following the news in Afghanistan, you can see like it's actually real in other countries. We're blessed by common grace here in America, but around the world, it is not this way. There are many who are still quite hostile to the faith. Practically here in America, we have been blessed with a measure of safety. We we don't genuinely fear death every day walking down the street, but the temperature is rising. And at least how many college students will face being expelled for not giving in to the LGBTQ madness? How many workers are going to lose their job for their faith? How many Christian institutions will lose all manner of support? So, well, oh, well, right? It's just the price of doing business with the Lord, but the benefit outweighs the cost. So, oh, well, Again, we're just, we're those who bear his reproaches. Now, sometimes though, an opponent might slander you and even persecute you, but they know they have to go one more step if they're going to stop you, if they're going to stop your, your worldview, your ideas from spreading, they have to discredit you. And this brings us to the third form of blessed persecution, back to verse 11. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, one, and persecute you, too. And then thirdly, he says, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. 
because of me. So the third representation of this blessed persecution is just a bearing false witness. Spreading lies, speaking evil of someone. This is when others spread falsehood about you behind your back. This is especially hard to deal with since you can't defend yourself. By the time you can testify what the truth is, the lies have already spread. They've sunk into the hearts of others. Even if you're completely innocent, your character might be assassinated in the court of public opinion. But you look, the pattern continues. This is just how they treated the Lord, both before killing him and after. They spread countless lies about him so as to discredit him and discourage his followers. One of the most notorious we'll see later in Matthew is they claim that he did all of his wonders by the power of demons. He cast out demons because he himself was empowered by the devil. And like the very first Christians, they knew all sorts of false accusations. The first three centuries of the church, the Roman world labeled Christians as atheists, as a slander, because they denied all the Roman gods. They also spread the rumor that Christians were cannibals. This came as a misrepresentation of the Lord's Supper. Christians were accused of incest because even married couples would call one another brother and sister. And ultimately, Christians were enemies of the state or traitors because they refused to participate in civic pride. They wouldn't worship Caesar. They wouldn't celebrate Roman feasts. They, they turned their back on the state. They're traitors. You know, for some, this type of persecution really, it gets to them. They can handle some slander, some name calling, but when their reputation is demolished in the public square, I mean, it, it breaks them. When false accusations cost them their business, when clients leave them, when their friends block them, they really, they feel the reproach of Christ. In a world of social media, how long till you get canceled for your faith? And for some people, this is just their greatest fear. But at least learn, like, what do you expect? They canceled Jesus first, and then all of his apostles, and then the first 300 years of the church Do you expect better treatment? Well, the Beatitudes tell us no. We don't seek out this persecution. We're not those who run to it and try and find it. But when it finds us, well, we don't fight back. Rather, you are to entrust yourself to God while doing what is right, just like the Lord. We hear from Peter again. 1 Peter 2.21 is a big one. 1 Peter 2.21 says, Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Verse 23 says, Christ, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's all we're supposed to do. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. More needs to be said here about how we should respond to this blessed persecution. We've covered this morning that the reasons for blessed persecution and the representations of blessed persecution. We still need to see the responses to blessed persecution and the rewards for blessed persecution. Those two we'll have to cover next week. But already from what we've learned this morning, there's this huge takeaway of the right expectations. If you want to persevere in the Christian life, you want to make it all the way through despite something like persecution, you need two things. You need right expectations and right perspective. 
We're going to round out the right perspective of suffering next week. But already we can, we can take home the right expectations of this persecution. Half of what Jesus is trying to do in all of his teaching on persecution is just, just calibrate his disciples with the right expectations. They are to expect forgiveness of sins, entrance into his kingdom, eternal life. Yes, expect all, all the true blessings. But just like Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And if, if you're old enough, you know that, that getting your expectations right in life is a huge deal. One commentator said, quote, Disappointment equals the distance between our expectations and our experience. That's pretty good. Disappointment equals the distance between our expectations and our experience. He said, do you want a surefire recipe for disappointment, frustration, and discouragement? Just make sure there's a huge gap between your expectations and your experience. Or in other words, when, when you live with unrealistic expectations, you're, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment and a lot of frustration. This is true in all aspects of life. You know, a husband comes home from work. He's tired. He's exhausted. He expects his wife to take care of the kids so he can rest and relax. He's earned it. Meanwhile, the wife is waiting for her husband to come home from work because she's tired and exhausted. She's expecting the husband to take care of the kids so she can relax and rest. She's earned it. You know what's coming next. That's just a recipe for, you know, deflation, disappointment, and a lot of strife. But it's just critical to set up right and realistic expectations in all matters of life. You need to know what's coming, that you might face it with your head neither in the clouds nor in the sand, but just fixed forward in reality. This helps you prepare for what's to come, that you might endure it and rightly respond. It's the same with the Christian life. The Lord Jesus is preparing his disciples for what to expect in following him, that they might endure it and rightly respond. And likewise, you too need to heed his words that you are not caught off guard. I mean, think of a brand new believer not prepared. He's thinking like, hey, I just, all I did was ask Jesus into my heart. And now everyone hates me and they're persecuting me. It's not what I signed up for. I thought following Jesus would make my life better. That's what the prosperity preacher told me. You see, how many new Christians have been set up for a rude awakening like this? And then all too many thereafter, caught unaware, they just fall away. No, but with eyes wide open, you must understand that the way of the Lord is a way of a cross. There's more we need to learn here. But, but see how Christ wants us to follow him. Wants us to follow him in his reproaches, his reviling, his rejection, his suffering, his insults, persecution. And for some, even his death. We also follow him in his reward. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. You know, that's how the Lord endured his cross. Remember, he went first. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us of Christ. It says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And sat down at the right hand of God. You know, Christ expected his cross and then he endured it. By fixing his eyes on the reward, the joy set before him. We're to do the exact same thing. Only our reward is, is Christ himself. And that's why Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12.3 then says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not uh, grow weary and lose heart. This is why we need right expectations, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I know that many Christians right now feel the future is bleak, and in a lot of people, there's an undercurrent of fear over the writing on the wall for our nation. But this fear will only deter you if it catches you off guard. What do you expect? Well, expect a cross before a crown. But just trust the Lord. I don't know what the future holds. I know who holds the future, as the old saying goes. And the Lord tells us that though persecution may come, that blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is, right now, the kingdom of heaven. There's more to say here, but expect, not just persecution, Expect a blessed persecution if you're going to follow Christ. And since the Apostle Peter has given us so much help this morning, it's only fitting to give him the last word. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Listen. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Let us, like Christ, set our eyes on the joy set before us to endure our cross. Until next time, let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word, which instructs us, comforts us, counsels us, but also warns us. And Lord Jesus, in love for his true disciples, wanted them to be prepared to understand what comes. If we're going to live as salt and light in a world of darkness, uh, it may not always be easy. There will be some who oppose us just as they did him. We thank you, Lord, for this word of warning. We need it, though not always the most pleasant thing to hear. Still, this is reality. These are expectations you want us to have that we might endure, that we might persevere, we might even rejoice knowing that the God who's sovereign over all these things is is good in control and has for us in mind only good in store. You work in us to perfect us, to make us more like Christ. We pray that, Lord. We pray all the time we want to just become more like Jesus, but do we not forget that that means a cross first, and we must be conformed to his image, and that includes bearing his sufferings. We thank you that Christ, though, suffered eternally for us in a way we could never, that he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He suffered the eternal wrath of God, which we now never will suffer because of him. We thank you that Christ has has really took the ultimate cross for us. Suffering this life is the closest we'll ever get to hell. Uh, Lift our spirits by, by truth, by knowing what is ahead. You have prepared a place for us. You care for us. You hold on to us securely. It's really nothing we need to fear. We trust you. So build us up. Build your people up in this trust with right expectations. We know there's joy ahead. So may the joy uh, set before us uh, propel us, Lord, and compel us to press on, excel still more until Christ returns. We long for that day. Until then, help us to persevere in the faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.